You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 182 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. At the end of the last episode, we said that on September 4th, 1862, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia started to cross the Potomac River into western Maryland. The Confederate troops were lean and sun-browned, their uniforms were soiled and tattered, some were barefoot, and many wore shoes that were in the last stages of falling apart. But despite their motley appearance and the exhaustion that followed weeks of strenuous campaigning, the rebel soldiers who crossed the Potomac into Maryland were brimming with confidence. Account after account of the campaign mentions the high morale of the troops after Second Manassas. The army had confidence, confidence in the cause it was fighting for, confidence in themselves, and confidence in Robert E. Lee. The Army of Northern Virginia started to cross the Potomac on Thursday, September 4th, and the movement continued through the weekend. We'd like to be able to tell you how many men Robert E. Lee took into Maryland, but it's actually rather difficult, if not impossible, to pin down the number of troops that Lee had with him at the beginning of the Antietam campaign. Historians have estimated Lee's initial force at anywhere from 50,000 to 75,000. In his book, The Long Road to Antietam, Richard Slotkin points out that at the time, Confederate record-keeping and reporting of troop strength was notoriously incomplete and inaccurate, so Robert E. Lee himself likely didn't have a clear idea of his army's true strength when he invaded Maryland. The report Lee made after the Battle of Antietam asserted that he had fewer than 40,000 men present on the battlefield. Only about 3,000 men were lost in the battles and skirmishes leading up to Antietam, but Lee himself would later remark that the extreme straggling that had plagued the army had reduced by a third the force he was able to field at Antietam. If that estimate is correct, then his army probably mustered around 65,000 at the start of the campaign. Whatever the actual numbers, as the campaign went forward, it became apparent that while Lee rightly regarded his soldiers as superb combat troops, he had overestimated their physical endurance and failed to properly anticipate the consequences of their lack of food, clothing, and especially shoes. More than 60% of the regiments in the Army of Northern Virginia had already participated in three or more general engagements, so the men were veterans who knew what to expect on a battlefield. But many of those men had simply already reached the limit of their physical endurance. In less than two weeks' time, between the start of the campaign and the Battle of Antietam, many officers in Lee's army watched their commands melt away before their eyes, due to straggling and desertion. (laughs) 
Although Robert E. Lee knew he was outnumbered by federal forces in the theater of operations, the salient fact is that he considered his army strong enough in numbers and morale for the campaign he was planning. The commands of Stonewall Jackson and James Longstreet were now effectively organized as Army Corps. Most of the brigades and divisions were composed of units that had served together through the previous campaigns outside Richmond and at Second Manassas. Lee did receive significant reinforcements just after Second Manassas. Sent up from Richmond by Jefferson Davis were three divisions commanded by D.H. Hill, Lafayette McClaws, and Richard Anderson. Lee chose not to assign these formations to Jackson or Longstreet for the moment, but to treat them as independent commands reporting to his own headquarters. He could use them as a general reserve or assign them to Stonewall or Longstreet as circumstances might require. And then Jeb Stewart's cavalry division also reported directly to Lee's headquarters. In keeping with its reputation for high-profile feuding between its officers, Lee's army set out on its invasion of Maryland with two of its best fighting generals under arrest. You see, during the recent campaign, Stonewall Jackson had got the idea that A.P. Hill was careless about enforcing the strict marching regimen expected of any general under Stonewall's orders, and on the move to the Potomac, the dispute boiled over. As a result, Stonewall relieved Hill of command of his division, and he went stumping along in a foul mood at the rear of the column. Another of Lee's division commanders was also exiled to the rear of the column. John B. Hood, who had won fame as commander of the Texas Brigade, had been placed under arrest, charged with insubordination in a dispute with Shanks Evans over possession of some captured federal ambulances. Robert E. Lee had little patience for such intramural scuffling, but he knew that personal honor was an important consideration for the officers in his army, and so he had to yield to the formalities of military protocol. Nevertheless, Lee made sure that Hood and A.P. Hill, two of his best fighting generals, remained attached to their commands, close at hand in case of an emergency. And if those annoyances weren't enough, Lee himself was suffering from the effects of a freak accident. A few days before, while standing with his aides, he had stumbled and fallen heavily while trying to restrain his horse, Traveler, when it shied. Both of Lee's hands were injured, the right one with a broken bone, and the left with a severe sprain. Splints were applied, and since he was unable to hold a horse's reins in his injured hands, Robert E. Lee would be forced to make a somewhat inglorious entry into Northern Territory, riding in an ambulance. Nor did James Longstreet present a very martial appearance. A badly blistered heel forced old Pete to give up one of his boots in favor of an old slipper, much to the amusement of his troops. A few days later, the third of the Army's top commanders would be incapacitated as well. Stonewall Jackson was presented with a new horse by an admirer in Maryland, but Stonewall was no sooner mounted than the horse reared, lost its balance, and toppled over backward. Jackson was thrown to the ground with a severe jolt. Stunned and bruised, he too was confined, confined to an ambulance for a few days.
Before embarking on his invasion of Maryland, Robert E. Lee received news that on September 2nd, Abraham Lincoln had put George McClellan in command of the Union forces that had retreated into the defenses around Washington. While speaking to an officer who had brought some of the Confederate reinforcements up from Richmond, Robert E. Lee said that McClellan, quote, is an able general, but a very cautious one. His enemies among his own people think him too much so. His army is in a very demoralized and chaotic condition and will not be prepared for offensive operations, or he will not think so for three or four weeks, end quote. Robert E. Lee almost certainly realized that his invasion of Maryland with a numerically inferior force was a gamble. Lee even admitted in a letter to Jefferson Davis that his army, under normal circumstances, really was in no condition to undertake such an operation. But Lee knew how McClellan had played his hand in the past, that is, cautiously, and Lee thought the federal forces must surely be disorganized and demoralized after Second Manassas. And so adding all of that up, Lee felt confident in predicting that McClellan wouldn't sally forth from his lines around Washington for three or four weeks. Proceeding on the assumption that his reading of his opponent and of the situation was correct, Lee intended to use those three or four weeks as a window of opportunity, a window of opportunity that would allow his army to operate with near impunity in western Maryland and perhaps even strike farther north into Pennsylvania. But, on all counts, Lee's assumptions were wrong. The federal forces that retreated back toward Washington in the wake of the debacle at Second Manassas may have been fractious and discouraged, but that changed when word of McClellan's return spread quickly among the troops. We've talked already about the fact that the effect of this news was electrical. For all of McClellan's character flaws, and despite his previous failures, he was undeniably beloved and trusted by the vast majority of the men. Almost in an instant, morale improved. Lieutenant Colonel and future U.S. President Rutherford B. Hayes of the 23rd Ohio, serving for the first time under Little Mac, spoke of this in a September 3rd letter to his uncle. Hayes said, quote, General McClellan is undoubtedly a great favorite with the men under him. Everywhere the joy is great and was spontaneously and uproariously expressed. It was a happy army again. End quote. The federal forces also weren't as disorganized as Lee thought. The units of John Pope's Army of Virginia were folded into the Army of the Potomac, and while the arrangement was far from perfect, it proved to be sufficient as far as giving McClellan the organization he needed in order to get the army moving quickly in pursuit of the Confederates. And yes, for once, Little Mac did move quickly and so another of Robert E. Lee's assumptions was wrong. Because McClellan, elated at being put back in charge again, at once began preparing for the difficult task ahead. Little Mac was enough of a strategist to realize that Lee probably wouldn't surrender the initiative, but at the same time, Lee's options for offensive operations were few. That the Confederates would cross the Potomac and head into Maryland, therefore, came as no great surprise. On September 4th, a message sent from the Union Signal Station on Sugarloaf Mountain, about 10 miles south of Frederick, Maryland, confirmed that the Confederates were indeed crossing the Potomac. 
Prepared for this, McClellan at once began organizing the pursuit, placing his army in motion on the roads leading north and west from Washington. In describing the march from Washington, a colonel commanding a brigade in the 6th Corps said, quote, Bands played, then men stepped out with that veteran swing which is only acquired by troops after long and continuous campaigning, and the Army of the Potomac seemed to be itself again. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving most of two corps behind to man the Washington defenses, McClellan, late on September 5th, set out in pursuit of the Confederates with five corps and also a division under Darius Couch from the 4th Corps and George Sykes' division of U.S. Regulars from the 5th Corps. To expedite the march, Little Mac adopted a wing structure. The right wing, under Ambrose Burnside, consisted of the 1st Corps, now under Joseph Hooker, and the 9th Corps, under Jesse Reno. These two corps were unfamiliar to McClellan, since they'd never served under his command. To command the Army's center wing, the 2nd and 12th Corps, Little Mac tapped Edwin Sumner, and then William Franklin took charge of the Army's left wing, which consisted of his own 6th Corps plus Couch's division. Screening the Army's advance was the Union Cavalry under Alfred Pleasanton, and then Sykes' division of regulars brought up the rear as a general reserve. On a map, the advance of the Army of the Potomac resembled a large pitchfork, or a trident, since McClellan, with no clear idea of where the Confederates were headed, was forced to cast a wide net to defend against all contingencies. Burnside's right wing moved north and then turned west in order to defend against any rebel advance toward Baltimore. Sumner brought up the center, pushing northwest directly toward Frederick, while Franklin's wing moved along the Potomac to the south. Little Mac himself set off on September 7th, writing to his wife that, quote, We are all well, and the entire army is now united, cheerful, and confident. You need not fear for the result, for I believe that God will give us the victory. That same day, September 7th, all of Robert E. Lee's army had crossed the Potomac and were either already encamped near or converging on Frederick. Frederick was Maryland's second largest city and was roughly 45 miles northwest of Washington and 50 miles west of Baltimore. Lee's plan had called for a crossing of the Potomac and then an advance north to Frederick, thereby threatening both Washington and Baltimore. 
but he then planned to move west from Frederick, over the Catoctin and South Mountain ranges, and into the lush Cumberland Valley, with Hagerstown as his desired destination. This movement would threaten Pennsylvania, and would naturally compel the Union Army, when it marched, to move even farther away from Washington, thereby extending its lines of supply and communication, and placing several mountain ranges between it and the capital. And as we said before, Lee was confident that once the campaign became one of maneuver, that is, once the Federals were moving again, out from behind the Washington defenses, then Robert E. Lee was confident he would have the upper hand. By moving west from Frederick across the mountains, Lee was also planning to reestablish his own lines of supply and communication. They would shift south and come up through the friendly Shenandoah Valley. You see, if Lee stayed east of the mountains, his lines of supply would become more tenuous and exposed as he marched north. But by moving west, he could not only solve this problem, but would also have a more secure way of receiving the supplies that were forwarded to his army. It was a sound strategy, and one that Lee decided on early in the campaign. But in its execution, Lee encountered another problem, one that would entirely derail his campaign. You see, in order to establish his supply lines through the Shenandoah Valley, it would necessarily need to be free of federal forces. But it wasn't. Even as the Army of Northern Virginia was preparing to move west from Frederick, two federal garrisons remained in the lower, that is, northern end of the valley. One was at Martinsburg, numbering 3,000 men under Julius White, and a larger one, 10,000 men strong, was at Harper's Ferry, under Dixon Miles. The presence of those Union positions came as no surprise to Robert E. Lee. He was well aware of their presence. He'd assumed, however, that those Yankee outposts would be evacuated once he crossed the Potomac and placed his army between them and Washington. In a measured understatement, Lee later noted that in this assumption, quote, I was disappointed. And so, since they hadn't skedaddled like he'd expected, not only were those Union soldiers in a position to threaten Lee's proposed new lines of supply and communication, but they would also be directly to the rear of his army once it crossed South Mountain and moved north toward Hagerstown. All of that's to say that those federal troops were the proverbial fly in the ointment, but at first Lee wasn't overly concerned. Yes, he would be forced to change his plans in order to clear Martinsburg and Harper's Ferry of those Yankees, but this, Lee believed, would only be a temporary diversion from his overall strategy. He believed taking care of those enemy outposts would be a quick, clean operation that would last no more than a few days. But as events would prove, in this too, Robert E. Lee would be greatly disappointed. On the afternoon of September 9th, Lee met with Jackson and Longstreet to explain how he intended to deal with those inconvenient Yankee outposts still in the Lower Valley. Lee said that Stonewall would lead the Army's advance early the following morning and with his three divisions march west along the National Pike across the mountains to Sharpsburg. He was then to cross the Potomac at some convenient point and by Friday, September 12th, capture the Federals at Martinsburg. 
Longstreet's command, along with the Army's supply and baggage trains, was to follow behind Jackson until reaching Boonesboro. Lafayette McClaws, with his own division, plus that of Richard Anderson, was directed to follow behind Longstreet as far as Middletown, where he was then to turn south toward Harper's Ferry. McClaws' joint command, totaling roughly 15,000 men, was by Friday morning to take possession of Maryland Heights, which overlooked Harper's Ferry from the north, and, quote, endeavor to capture, end quote, the federal garrison there. And while McClaws approached Harper's Ferry from the north, John Walker's division was to recross the Potomac and take possession of Loudoun Heights, which loomed high over Harper's Ferry from the south, working, quote, as far as practicable, end quote, to cooperate with McClaws in bagging the Yankee garrison. After clearing the Federals from Martinsburg and Harper's Ferry, Stonewall, McClaws, and Walker would move north and reunite with the rest of Lee's army at either Boonesboro or Hagerstown, depending on circumstances. Meanwhile, D.H. Hill's division was to form the Army's rear guard, following behind Longstreet. The final assignment fell to Jeb Stuart. His cavalry was to, quote, cover the route of the Army, bringing up all stragglers that may have been left behind, end quote, and also keeping a careful eye on any federal advance from Washington. It was a bold, audacious plan. If Lee was gambling by invading Maryland, then he was taking a further risk by dividing his weary army, already plagued by straggling, into five parts and spreading it across a sizable stretch of territory. Stonewall Jackson initially opposed the idea. He wished to give battle east of the mountains around Frederick, but Lee quickly dismissed the suggestion. Lee said it was imperative to move west, open the Shenandoah Valley, and lure the Union Army over the mountains, farther away from Washington. Longstreet also opposed the wide separation of the army, and he was able to convince Lee, for the moment at least, to allow him to halt his command closer at hand at Boonesboro and not farther north at Hagerstown, as Lee originally intended. Lee then dismissed his two lieutenants, and dictated this daring plan to his chief of staff, who recorded it as Special Orders Number 191. Copies of these orders were prepared and distributed to each of the commanders listed therein. Lee then retired for the night, confident that by Friday, just three days distant, the Federals would be cleared from the valley, and shortly thereafter his army would again be united to continue with the overriding objective of the campaign, that is, to draw the Union Army into another major battle and inflict another stunning defeat on it, this one on northern soil. Part of the reason why Robert E. Lee was willing to gamble and undertake such a risky venture as the one spelled out in Special Orders Number 191 was because of a false sense that time was on his side. But what Lee didn't realize was how quickly his time was running out. Lee's window of time was closing rapidly because he was in the dark as to the unexpectedly quick movement of the Union Army out of Washington, an error that can largely be attributed to Jeb Stewart's doing a poor job of keeping Lee informed on the progress of the federal advance. In fact, Lee was so ignorant of the Union Army's movement 
that on September 8th, while in Frederick, and just one day before issuing number 191, he wrote to Jefferson Davis, saying, quote, As far as I can learn, the enemy are not moving in this direction, but continue to concentrate about Washington. But by that very day, the Army of the Potomac had already advanced more than 10 miles from the capital's fortifications, and there had been some sharp skirmishes between the opposing cavalry. The following day, September 9th, the Federals' advance carried them to the halfway point between Washington and Frederick, and by the 11th, even as the Confederate rear guard was leaving the city, the leading columns of McClellan's army were already within 10 miles of Frederick. Making matters worse, not only was the Union army moving rapidly on Lee's divided forces, but the Confederate commander had also established an unrealistic timetable for the successful execution of the orders set out in number 191. Lee's timetable would be thrown off because the valley operation would quickly fall behind schedule. Stonewall Jackson did get off to a good start, beginning the march west from Frederick at 4 a.m. on September 10th. Before noon, his men had crossed both Catoctin and South Mountain, but after this strenuous march, Jackson called a halt outside Boonesboro. There his men remained for the rest of the day, having covered just 13 miles from Frederick. The next day, instead of marching west to Sharpsburg, Jackson turned his columns northwest to Williamsport, where his men forded the Potomac. And so instead of approaching the Union garrison at Martinsburg from the east, Jackson's columns would now be converging on that place from the north and west. Meanwhile, farther back, and just as Jackson's men were splashing across the Potomac, Longstreet's troops arrived in, Bo in Boonesboro. They didn't stay there for long, because Lee had heard that there were large quantities of flour in Hagerstown. In addition, there were reports of a large body of Pennsylvania militia supposed, supposedly marching south from Chambersburg, a move that would threaten the rear of Stonewall's command. Lee therefore directed Longstreet to continue north to Hagerstown after all. And so already, Lee was significantly deviating from the plan spelled out in number 191 and was spreading his army even wider apart. Old Pete again protested this further separation of the army, supposedly declaring to Lee, General, I wish we could stand still and let the damned Yankees come to us. Longstreet's command arrived in Hagerstown the following day, September 12th, the same day Lee had originally hoped Jackson's Valley operation would end, and the earliest date he had hoped to be able to reunite his fragmented army. But things would obviously not work out that way. About noon, Lee, who had traveled with Longstreet to Hagerstown, learned from Stonewall that the Federal garrison at Martinsburg had fled. That meant Martinsburg was now cleared, but the Yankees had simply escaped to Harper's Ferry. That meant Dixon Miles' garrison there had been strengthened by another 3,000 men. Knowing the enemy force at Harper's Ferry would remain a thorn in Lee's side, Stonewall decided to head there next. And so rather than recrossing the Potomac to rejoin Lee, Jackson instead led his men south from Martinsburg, arriving on Bolivar Heights, the high ground west of Harper's Ferry, the following afternoon, Saturday, September 13th.
As Stonewall Jackson's men moved south from Martinsburg toward Harper's Ferry on September 12th, Lafayette McClaws and John Walker continued to follow their orders as spelled out in number 191, but both had already fallen behind schedule. It wouldn't be until the late afternoon of the 13th that McClaws, after a tough bloody fight, gained possession of Maryland Heights, and Walker placed his men atop Loudoun Heights. With Confederate troops having secured those spots, though, and with Stonewall's men by then occupying the high ground to the west, Harper's Ferry was at last surrounded. But the Federal commander, Dixon Miles, was under orders to hold out to the last, and for the moment at least, he intended to do just that. And so to Stonewall Jackson, it now became clear that the Yankees wouldn't obligingly roll over and let the rebels be on their way, but rather there would have to be a fight to force the stubborn enemy to give up Harper's Ferry. Lee's miscalculation regarding the timing of the valley operation caused his plans to start to unravel. But more significantly, Lee, based partly on the scarcity and inaccuracy of the reports he received from Jeb Stuart, had entirely misjudged the advance of the Union Army from Washington. And so by September 13th, whether he fully appreciated it or not, Robert E. Lee was in serious trouble. The afternoon before, the advance elements of the Army of the Potomac had entered Frederick. McClellan arrived in the city the following morning, and by that afternoon, the afternoon of the 13th, Union troops were already pushing west, heading toward South Mountain and Lee's widely dispersed army. Lee didn't know it yet, but he had lost the initiative. It now lay directly in the hands of his opponent. And then quite apart from Lee's misreading of his opponent's ability to react to the rebel army strike north, and apart from Lee's miscalculation regarding the timing of the valley operation, there was one more factor that had the potential to deal a serious blow to the Confederate commander's plans. Because, you see, George McClellan, with some of his men already pushing west of Frederick on the afternoon of September 13th, and the rest of his army in motion converging on the city, while Little Mac had set up his headquarters at Frederick that day, and there, about noon, George McClellan was unexpectedly handed a copy of Robert E. Lee's Special Orders Number 191. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is actually a back issue, but a fairly recent back issue, of a Civil War magazine. That's because in the winter 2016 issue of the Civil War Monitor, the feature article is by Stephen Sears, and it looks at The Curious Case of the Lost Order. Yep, uh, Sears is the author of one of our future book recommendations on the Battle of Antietam, and he's also the author of a past book recommendation, a McClellan biography, but here in this issue of the Civil War Monitor, he takes a close look at what has become known in Civil War lore as simply the Lost Order. And with the next episode, we'll talk a bit about the significance, if there was any, of a copy of Special Orders Number 191 falling into McClellan's hands. But if you want to dig into the matter more on your own, then we recommend you pull out or pick up this issue of the Civil War Monitor, the winter 2016 issue, and you'll learn all you ever wanted to know about the Lost Order. 
Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We have the next members episode all ready to go and just need to find the time to record it. It will be the 49th members episode and will be the first of two shows about the CSS Arkansas. And we want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade who signed up this past week, Jefferson, Alan, Michael, and Jeff. And then we also want to thank Robert and Mindy for their donations this past week. And a special shout-out to Mindy, who said her donation was in honor of Abraham Lincoln's birthday, which just happens to be today as we record this episode. Yep, happy birthday, Mr. Lincoln. And thanks, guys. It's really those donations and also your memberships in the Strawfoot Brigade that allow us to keep the podcast going as we're here four-plus years on. Uh, So, yep, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time as we continue our march to Antietam. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.